Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this episode, I discuss the politics of COVID with freelance writer and political commentator Mogdi Semro. It's a really engaged, wide-ranging conversation that I really enjoyed a lot, and I hope you'll get a lot out of, too. We cover a lot of ground, but essentially what, what gets asked in this episode is, first, do we think many of the restrictions that have been put in place because of the COVID pandemic are justified from a moral-stroke-political-philosophy standpoint? And second, how and why have the political left and the political right diverged in how they think about this? Why, for instance, has opposition to masking or to vaccine mandates become a rallying cry for the far right globally? I'm not going to do an extended introduction to this one, except just to note that now I've finally got my book out, I'm hoping to get back to a more frequent release schedule on the podcast. I don't have, like, an exact frame in mind, but hopefully I'll be bringing you a combination of interviews, conversations, debates, solo episodes, with greater frequency than than uh, I, I have been. So, apologies for the, the slowdown. Um, hopefully the, the book will make, make that worth it. Oh, and <laughs> of course I have to get a plug in there. Please do pre-order What is Freedom? Conversations with historians, philosophers, and activists from Oxford University Press or any online bookseller. Um, apart from that, let's get straight to it. This is COVID and Ideology with Mogdi Semro. Okay, I am joined today by Mogdi Semru. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you're a freelance writer and we met on um, Twitter. And if you'll allow a compliment, I think you're one of the <laughs> better voices on politics Twitter, which is not, it's not uniformly trash takes, although <laughs> there's, there's um, a lot of them. So mm-hmm. I wanted to start there almost like you um how do you think about like engaging with a reasonably sized audience on this medium that has a sometimes deserved reputation for being loud and shrill and angry and not particularly thoughtful Mhm um well thank you first of all I appreciate that um I don't know I I hadn't intended to get a big following. It just sort of happened mm-hmm. uh, over time. And I just, I try to be nice. Um, and, and times when I haven't been nice, because it's, it's not always that I've been reasonable in every case. Uh, I've always felt badly afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I also, you know, have looked at the dynamics of social media and psychological research on um, how these things unfold. And really, in terms of Twitter, it's just this petri dish of negative psychological phenomena where, um, you know, negativity is rewarded way more than positivity. Um, There's also this effect of within group polarization such that um, it's not just polarization between groups, but that within a group, we've seen this in psychology all over the place. This is particularly true in jury studies, Hmm. um, where basically what happens is if you get a group of people together who have some basic agreement and they talk about um, the thing that they agree about, they become more and more extreme over time. Hmm. So what the jury studies have shown uh, in psychology is that people can agree on a guilty verdict. And then when they start to discuss what the, um, punishment or, you know, what the sentence should be, they start trying to one up each other, Mm. you know? Um, and we see this everywhere and you definitely see it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, one area where I thought was the democratic primary, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, of course, we started out originally in 2019 with the Hillary Clinton camp and the Sanders camp. And um, that sort of divide was already well known. But then even within this camp of Hillary Clinton supporters, Hmm. people broke off to their various candidates and over time became much more extreme and hostile towards one another, Hmm. which was an interesting thing to see. So anyway, that's all to say that, like, I've looked at this. Hmm. I know I've participated in these sort of dynamics, um, and I try to avoid it. Um, and I find it more rewarding to try to avoid it. It's way outside the scope of anything um, we agreed to discuss. But mm-hmm. I've spent a huge amount of time on the podcast with guests and in solo episodes thinking about the 2016 primary. Mm-hmm. Not just for its own sake. I mean, it was a it was a consequential primary, but mm-hmm. um, because I have a pet thesis that so much of the intra left sort of communication we've had in America is essentially an ongoing series of attempts to relitigate that primary. And oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Not, not necessarily usefully or productively and i cling quite hard to a sort of moderate ground where Mm -hmm. i think there's valid points on both sides and Mm -hmm. honestly just utter nonsense (laughs) on both sides as well and i don't ever i'd like to think i have some remaining credence with the bernie sanders left who are (laughs) a majority of my followers Mm -hmm. um but i think they're also aware that i will from a place of ideological sympathy make Mm -hmm. a lot make make a number of critiques of um that a a lot of the narratives that have emerged from that world that just aren't internally coherent and don't track reality in any right. way. Although I've also had plenty of critiques of the sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, mainline democratic view as yeah. well. Well, I mean, if you think about, <laughs> if you think about 
the entire left spectrum, so from the moderates to the left or whatever, the idea that we can capture this in two different groups mm. is ridiculous, right? Mm. It's a totally ter- it's a terrible interpretive lens. Mm. Um, people keep applying it, the Sanders versus Clinton. Mm. It doesn't really capture a lot of things. You know, there can be differences about economics or differences about social policy or differences about tactics. Um, mm. You know, there's all, all of these various things that, you know, differentiate Democrats. And it just cannot be captured in this divide. Um, and I, I, I mean, getting back to the Twitter thing, uh, I was a Sanders supporter in 2016. Mm. Very, very hardcore Sanders supporter. Um, I was also very, I wasn't on Twitter at the time. I was also very respectful of Hillary Clinton. And I had many friends who were respectful of Hillary Clinton. Um, and then when I got on Twitter, I was like, this is, this is insane. This is not really representative of a rea- of reality. Um, so yeah, that's my experience with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was working for working families party at the time mm-hmm. of that. And so that was filled with very, um, hardcore, um, Sanders people. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the people on their side will, on that side of the aisle, will sort of do feel they are unfairly stereotyped by the behaviour mm-hmm. of the worst. Um, I, I to this day, use um, Joe Biden's brilliant malapropism, um, Bernie Brothers. That is just oh, yeah. like, <laughs> I love that so much. Like that's one of yeah. the best things Biden's ever said. <laughs> um, but then again, Joe Biden is is president, like partly on the back of not knowing what the internet is and just yes, yes, having exactly. a profound commitment to not caring about Twitter. So right. maybe he's onto something. <laughs> um, we might get back to that at the very end when we talk okay. about like the um ideological consequences mm-hmm. but we were we we decided to do covid and the politics of covid for this mm-hmm. um one question i had for you is is how did you start writing about it and one thing that's made me quite cautious about doing commentary on covid and i've often waited a while to have a take is mm-hmm. there's just so many people who like um uh, are clearly massively over-speculating on every bit right. of data and potentially putting, you know, without going as far as being like a conspiracy theorist, are potentially talking way off their area of expertise and mm-hmm. contributing to narratives that might turn out to be quite harmful. Like, mm-hmm. how did you start writing about it and how do you sort of balance... Because on the other hand, we have to talk about it. Like, it's very consequential for our politics. But how do you sort of balance the need to talk about it with, like, I guess a philosopher might say, an epistemic humility? Okay, yeah. Um, Well, first, I I think I should... I'm just addicted to Mm fact-checking or understanding any new phenomenon that comes up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm not saying that in sort of a self-congratulatory way. It's very much... like a sparrow with a sparkly object kind of thing. Um, but uh, so there's that. And then I have a background in uh, scientific research, uh, particularly at, on the behavioral level. Um, and then additionally, I had tuberculosis. Hmm. So um, 
when COVID first struck um, the United States and the world, I mean, back in March 2020, um, it was, I had a slightly different experience because I'd already had this um, experience with public health. And so I felt like here are all these things that I, I know about that are people, people are experiencing for the first time. So uh, could you talk us, um, if you're comfortable doing so, could you mm -hmm. talk us through your tuberculosis story? Because I read your article on that mm -hmm. and it is quite, I'll, I'll let you go first before we get into commentary on it. Could you talk okay. people through, if you catch tuberculosis in the United States, mm -hmm. what happens to you? Right. So the first, um, I should say that there is a distinction between active tuberculosis and latent tuberculosis. Um, it's kind of an important distinction because a lot of people have come into contact with um, tuberculosis and uh, develop latent tuberculosis, which just basically means you have been exposed to the bacteria, you have the bacteria in your body, but it never progresses to disease. You're never contagious, it never infects your lungs, um, and you can be treated for that, but it's just not, it's not particularly serious, right? Um, now, some people, unlucky people, uh, go from being latently um, exposed, so having latent tuberculosis to active tuberculosis, where it's actually um, invaded the lungs, um, it's necrotic, it's eating the lung tissue, it can uh, invade any other part of the body, people get tuberculosis in their uterus, people get tuberculosis, you know, basically any anywhere, um, but it's primarily lungs. So that's the first thing. So I developed active tuberculosis, and I probably had active tuberculosis for at least mm, 18 months, 12 months, 12 to 18 months before I was officially diagnosed because originally they thought it was pneumonia. So um, anyway, what happens, back to the question of what happens when you have active tuberculosis, it's crazy. It was, it was an incredibly disorienting, um, just bizarre experience because I, um, had had these symptoms for a while. I finally went to the pulmonologist. People kept telling me, you need to get that cough checked out. You need to get that cough checked out. Um, so I went to the pulmonologist. He told me I probably had asthma, um, sent me home. Then he looked at my x-ray and he was like, you have, you know, either tuberculosis or cystic fibrosis. So then um, you go through weeks of testing uh, to, to figure out what's going on. And um, so then in terms of what happens to you, he brought me into his office. Everyone was masked. The last time I'd been to, been to his office, no one had been masked. Um, so this was sort of a, I knew when I walked in, I was like, this is a disturbing experience. And again, this is back in 2016. So this is before, you know, mandates, mask mandates and all of that. It was very different. Um, so he told me I had tuberculosis. And then I asked him, okay, what's next? And how are you going to treat me? And he said, oh, I don't treat you. You are, um, you're going to go to public health, and it's going to be the government. Um, and he said, the government will pay for everything. Um, but what you, need to go, what you need to do now is you need to uh, go straight home. You're not allowed to stop anywhere. Go straight home from the office. Sit at home. The government's going to call you. Um, so I went straight home. The government called me. They told me, you know, you're going to come in tomorrow to public health. 
and you have to go around to the back door to the tuberculosis clinic and it's locked. So we'll meet you at the back door and we'll meet you with a mask. Um, so I did that, met them, they had hazmat suits, some of them did not all of them. Um, and basically they just do a full exam um, and they tell you that you're legally required to be treated uh, and that you'll be treated six to nine months depending um, with four different antibiotics. Um, and, uh, you know, all the other various things like x-rays and sputum samples and all of that. Uh, and then they say you're going to have to have a contact investigation. So we're going to make you write down a list of every single person you've had contact with for over three hours over the past 18 months. Um, and so that's basically how the whole process starts. And then in terms of the medication administration, you are not allowed to take the medication on your own. Um, so public health comes to your house every day to watch you take it. Uh, and you don't have control over the pills. They take the pills with them and they unwrap each one and then give each one one to you and check off a list to make sure you're taking it correctly. And that goes on for six to nine months. And none of that's mandatory. And none of that's optional. No, it is not optional. You would go to jail. Um, and if you know people look it up, there's lots of cases of TB, you know, people diagnosed with TB who are going to jail. There's a few famous cases where um, extremely drug-resistant TB, uh, where a man flew on an airplane, went to jail, uh, that kind of thing. And, and that's the other thing I should say is that uh, for tuberculosis, the first two weeks at least you're in quarantine and public health will come and check up on you at random times to make sure you're in your house. Then, depending on your tests, you can leave quarantine, but you're not allowed to leave the city or the state without permission. Um, you're certainly never allowed to leave the country. Uh, but if you do leave the city or state, if they decide, you know, you're not a high risk, you can only go for a week and you have to check in at their local public health department to have them watch you take the pills. So you always have to be watched when you're taking the pills. So one bit of context that that adds is there's nothing that we're doing stroke have done with COVID that's <clears throat> new necessarily. No. So like everyone's well not everyone but a certain subset of people are kicking off about a vaccine mandate in the military say mm -hmm. but the military already mandates like a whole bunch of vaccines mm -hmm. um and then even when it comes to the more um invasive control over the person what you described is way in excess of anything yes. that's been imposed um to combat covid yes um it is it is very extreme and the antibiotics are very harsh on the body. Um, they're not, you know, your standard antibiotics. Um, and you know, you have to do all of these things like medically induced choking, right? Where you go into a chamber and you inhale, you go into a bio chamber and you inhale tons and tons and tons of a saline solution to make you cough as hard as you possibly can so that they get the best sample. And then again, that's legally mandated. You can't say, no, I don't want to be choked into, you know, into coughing. So it is, it is way more extreme. And it's how we keep tuberculosis under control. Because it didn't used to be, I'm sure you know more than I do, but tuberculosis was, what, a few generations ago, like a real killer. Yes, yes. Um, it, you know, uh, and, and it still is in the United States or not in the United States, it still is in the world. 
um, it's still in the world uh, within the top 10 leading causes of death. Um, and uh, before COVID, it was the top cause of death from infectious disease. Um, so it is, it is a, a real problem. But in terms of the United States, yes, the rate of tuberculosis has in, dropped incredibly. And part of that is, you know, the discovery of antibiotics. I think they, I might be misremembering, but it was, I think, the 1950s where they first sort of really hit on a, a, a good combination, um, although it's been developed since then. So part of that's the development of antibiotics. Uh, but a huge part of it is this strict protocol. Um, which, in particular, the strict protocol prevents uh, the bacteria from developing um, drug resistance. I was or the um, escape of drug resistant bacteria, I should say. Fifties makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Anecdotally, um, we mentioned before we hit record that I used to live on Staten Island. Staten mm -hmm. Island has a big um, undeveloped section of woods, woods in the middle of it, and mm -hmm. these woods house some of the creepiest stuff in the universe. <laughs> um, and one of those things is an abandoned tuberculosis hospital. Um, but hospital mm -hmm. is an overstatement because I've. I've, right. I've been around here there it's just sort of like almost just like these military style barracks where mm -hmm. they just put people one after mm -hmm. the other after the other after the other each one holding 50 to 100 people dozens mm -hmm. and dozens of these things and they're all abandoned now and i think they were abandoned right. about in the 50s but it mm -hmm. wasn't a hospital in the sense of like well it's more like we just need to yeah. get pe infectious people away from people mm -hmm. Um, yeah. and so you're talking about sanitariums? Basically, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure they would have called it that, but yeah, that's um, what it was. Um, and you you get the tiniest hint, because um, you, you can just go and walk around this. Um, mm -hmm. Like, it's just there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you get the tiniest hint of, like, the amount of horror and suffering that that mm -hmm. place must have had. Just, like, the yeah. tiniest historical shadow, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, and tuberculosis was a death sentence for a long time before the, you know, they discovered the proper drug cocktails. Um, and so it frequently was, yes, just herding people off into these spaces and keeping them away from everyone else and waiting for them to die. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess here's the political philosophy question. Um, you have you have the sort of overall picture of the harm tuberculosis can do. Mm -hmm. You also have an incredible restriction of what bodily autonomy, you would call mm -hmm. it, that happened mm -hmm. to you. Was mm -hmm. what happened to you justified? Is that a set of powers that the state should possess and use for things like that? Yes, I believe it was absolutely justified. Um, because, you know, I have utilitarian tendencies. Um, yeah, me too. So, yeah. So the harm, you know, incurred to me, uh, is, you know, much smaller than what would happen if I were allowed to spread tuberculosis to others. And like I said, it's a leading cause of death in the world. Um, uh, and, um, 
The other issue is, again, uh, multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis or extremely drug-resistant tuberculosis. There's like, different levels of how drug-resistant the tuberculosis is. And I think we kind of throw these terms out there, but um, it really means that it's a bacteria that's often untreatable with antibiotics. Yeah. Um, and you have to move, you immediately have to move to the second-line or third-line antibiotics, which are highly toxic. So in cases of uh, multiple drug-resistant tuberculosis, um, there's a high rate of deafness um, from being treated. Uh, you have to be treated for much longer. Um, only about 55% of people survive, even after all this treatment. Um, so if we're talking about justifying um, you know, a small number of people, such as myself, taking on these costs, um, in terms of the community, it's not just about preventing a tuberculosis outbreak itself, um, but preventing uh, the spread of drug-resistant bacteria, which is, you know, virtually untreatable. I mean, I agree um, without the, the um, context of personal experience, but just thinking mm -hmm. of it as a sort of political philosophy thing. I mean, my general thought on the ethics of COVID restriction has been just the liberty principle, essentially, huh. in that you are in the domain of harming others. Right. And I mean, with COVID, too, we've seen that, that double set of harms that you just referenced of there's, you are harming people by risking infecting them. Mm -hmm. You are also harming them by, you know, not, say, being vaccinated or practicing social distancing or wearing masks, you mm. allow it to infect more people and continue longer and develop these new variants, which are mm -hmm. now doing so much damage. So there's right. sort of two sets of harms, but the harms are enormous. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't... I, I don't think you can really um, shelve off into the realm of purely self-regarding action, to sort of use yeah. the, the mill language. Um, in the same way as you can't for, like, restrictions on driving. Like, mm -hmm. it's not just like you can't run into people. There's, mm -hmm. like, you have to drive in specified ways because you can kill people doing this. Right. Right. I mean, I think I used an example, it's maybe an imperfect example, uh, the other day where you know, you can get really, really drunk on your front porch um, and chain smoke a lot of cigarettes. Um, and you, that's an issue of, you know, my body, myself. You're doing, you know, whatever harm you're doing, you're doing to yourself. Um, but, you know, smoking on a playground is not the same thing. Smoking in an enclosed space is not the same thing. And nor is drinking and driving. Right. At, at, at that point, um, you've made a series of choices that affect others. And then in terms of COVID, I mean, you've brought up the uh, infections, you know, infecting people. Um, and we've had mass deaths. We've had mass disease. There's going to be probably an oncoming health crisis where people have um, damage to their organs, those who have survived COVID. Um, but then additionally, you have the whole issue of hospital collapse, mm. right? So that um, these, these effects start building and building and building up. 
um, and go even far beyond COVID, where you know organ transplants are being delayed, cancer treatments are being delayed. Um, in hospitals, they're having to make a choice between uh, repurposing ventilators from NICUs, from um, neonatal intensive, intensive care units, uh, repurposing those for adults or saving them just in case they get a premature baby. These are the choices that are having to be made. We've entered, you know, in the country, we've entered into triage care, which was totally preventable. But here, you know, where triage means that you were um, making a calculation about who gets care and who doesn't. Um, and so there's the, the issue of COVID, um, and just how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died, hundreds of thousands of people have suffered. Uh, and then additionally, all this collateral, the sort of diffuse consequences across these hospital systems. It's really, um, the consequences are just so huge. Yeah. No, I mean, I won't go through the story because I'm not sure um, um everyone involved would sort of want me to share it, but, like, I've had very close family members getting major, like, sort of life-or-death surgeries during the COVID crisis, and, mm -hmm. like, it, it pretty severely impacts people with, you know, all sorts of other mm -hmm. conditions, you mm -hmm. know? Like, um, really, really severely. These are not small things this is no. are your loved ones alive <laughs> sort of level right. you know um okay i mean i i think one one danger sometimes of interviewing someone you align with pretty closely is mm -hmm. you can just end up reinforcing each other <laughs> yeah. so like yeah it's, it's not just that i agree with the conclusion it's that i think we agree for largely the same reasons we're both drawn to consequentialist arguments, mm -hmm. we both accept the liberty principle as a reasonable framework to think about this. Um, I'm trying to think, like, what are, do we grant any credence to arguments on the other side? Because I think there's two ways you can go, one of which is you can just not grant plausibility to moral consequentialism or to the the, the liberty principle and mm -hmm. really just prioritise bodily autonomy above all else. Um, the other way, I guess, is you could say, well, okay, we grant the liberty principle, but Mill doesn't stop by just saying, because it harms others, you can prohibit it. He also mm -hmm. says... It has to be justified on the utilitarian merits. And then he goes on to say, you also want to think about, like, if having the state mandate this as opposed to voluntary solutions is sort of going to have, like, long-run negative consequences. Mm -hmm. So an analogy, and it's a, there's a lot of ways in which this is a disanalogy. But an analogy would be something like the the state clearly has a role in preventing terrorism, but a lot of what it ends up doing pursuant of that liberty principle kosher goal ends up massively increasing its powers vis-a-vis -vis surveillance, the justice system, stuff like mm -hmm. that, which we then end up living with forever. And mm -hmm. that's that's the fear of a lot of anti-lockdown people is once right. we give all this power up to the government, 
we'll never get it back again. I don't see that happening with public health in the same way that it happened with terrorism. But that that is what people are afraid of. I mean, how much credence do you grant to that sort of line of, of argumentation? I mean, I think it's an interesting... I think it's a, a part where we do have to be intellectually rigorous. Um, and there's sort of, you know, the distinction between um, what's, you know, what's abstract and, um, you know, following the philosophical questions each step of the way. Uh, and then there's the more concrete question of what has happened, yeah. right? So in terms of the United States, um, and the, the concrete question is the much more less interesting one. But in terms of the United States, you know, I would say we've had these protocols forever. Hmm. Uh, like, like I said, with um, tuberculosis and so on and so forth. I don't see these new protocols as being a new development that leads us towards greater authoritarianism or something like that. And that's just the concrete. Yeah. You know, where I'm like, I'm not worried about it, right? I think there's um there's examples from Hungary. I wish I wish I knew exactly um what Orban had done. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think there are examples, um, especially from Hungary, of Victor Orban specifically using COVID to erode civil liberties. Hmm. Right. Um I'd have to look that up. But anyway, I just don't see that as happening in the United States. I see what's happening in the United States as being a standard infectious disease control model. Um, it's just so, COVID is so widespread that the standard model we've always used is much more visible and affecting a lot more people. In terms of the philosophical position, um, like if we were just to trace that along, um, I think you know, again, being a consequentialist, it seems like COVID is a pretty clear case of um, preventing mass harm. Uh, I think uh, of vaccines preventing mass harm. Um, and the, you know, the benefits are just so huge. And then the risk of vaccination is so low. Hmm. Uh, if vaccines were riskier, which to be clear, they're not um, risky at all. But if, say, you know, someone, uh, you know, was at 25% greater risk of something um, from getting a vaccine, then the imposition on them, right, to protect society, that balance gets more out of whack. But one of the reasons why I think COVID is such a clear example is that vaccines are just so low risk to the individual and have such huge societal benefits. Um, now, if we moved beyond COVID and talked about other things, um, you know, like um, spin taxes or something like that, taxing cigarettes, hmm. uh, that kind of thing, um, I think that in those cases, the, um, the balance is a little bit more difficult to determine or at least, at least a little bit more complicated. But in terms of COVID, I just, I just am the United States and the laws that we have, I just don't see... Um, there being much credibility in these arguments that this is, you know, authoritarian or scary, or that you're imposing a ton of cost on the individual, because it just, vaccines are basically costless, right? 
two thoughts, and feel free to take me up on either of them. On the practical side, mm-hmm. when it emerged in America under the Trump administration, and actually we've had a very similar story in Britain under Boris Johnson's conservative government, is with, in both cases, you had conservative governments with some authoritarian tendencies, I mean, certainly Mm -hmm. in Trump's case, overtly authoritarian Mm -hmm. tendencies, who Mm -hmm. had a major crisis. And Mm -hmm. not only did they not really exploit that crisis to, to... to do to do a Victor Orban, so to speak, but there was mm-hmm. a real reluctance on both of their parts, and in many ways they sort of had to be dragged kicking and screaming to use mm-hmm. the coercive tools that they already right. had. Like they right. didn't want to do this. Like mm-hmm. Johnson, in no, I think Johnson is a very classic small-minded English libertarian. I government can't come in and tell me I can't go down the pub. I think he is. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a man who spent decades writing, you know, stupid columns in the right-wing press about the so-called nanny state. It just flew in the face of every one of his instincts. Mm-hmm. And I think something similar was true with Trump. Although right. that's a slightly different case. But anyway, they didn't want to do this. They did it because, mm-hmm. like, literally it was like this or we lose 5% of the population. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, right. And then I guess on the other side, I guess I can sort of hear some people going, well, this is why I hate utilitarians. Like, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're just too ready to bite these bullets and just go mm-hmm. for the greater good. And isn't mm-hmm. there something just about that impulse that's a bit like suspect even on like a level of character you know right <laughs> that's definitely the case that's definitely how people feel about utilitarian um yeah i mean i think it, it it's interesting uh, the, the covid case i think it, it's an interesting contrast with the terrorism case that you brought up because hmm. covid comes right this this infectious disease comes there are multiple different ways that this could have unfolded and you know based on what we know about real world conservatives um or real world you know far right which many of them are at this point um there's still multiple paths it could have taken right it could have been you know i'm going to use this to suspend civil liberties or um i'm going to deny that this is happening and you know there's there's these different paths um and i think COVID is a case of, um, how to say it, so of different uh, ideological tendencies within, say, far-right or conservative politicians. There's a conflict Mm. of different ideologies. So um, in some cases, they want to be authoritarian Mm. and enact, you know, government control that advances their interests. On the other hand, they want to, they have sort of an anti-government tendency. They appeal to populism. They appeal to all of this. So I think it's, the COVID case is an interesting case with terrorism because terrorism is a case where these um, ideologies align. Hmm. So, um, you know, whatever nationalistic rhetoric they have, Hmm. uh, whatever sort of, um, you know, firing up the populace they have also aligns with restricting civil liberties, right? In the COVID case, um, 
firing up the populace means sort of denying that the government can help hmm. or denying that the government has any role. So I, I think it's the, the sort of within the conservative ideology, the COVID case kind of diverges somewhat, whereas in the terrorist terrorism is very convergent. What happens, I think, um, well, I have a few narratives about what's going on, um, but here's one. Um, I did some research a while ago, this, this was ages ago now, that was like opinion polling, but it looked at to what extent do the way people understand political values like freedom, justice, welfare, fairness, equality, what meanings they ascribe to them, and how that might correlate or not with policy positions. Mm -hmm. um, and you see some really interesting patterning that at first pass doesn't make any sense at all, but when you think about it, it does. So mm -hmm. one of the best predictors of whether someone would prioritise economic growth over the environment was an idea of welfare as helping people. One of the biggest predictors of that would be a, a, an agreement with, like, we as a society should provide for those in need. To the extent that you agree with that, you agree with carbon taxes. Why? Right. Um, and I think what's going on on the conservative side, I can talk about the liberal and socialist side, but I think what's going on on the conservative side is they have this image of, like, the undeserving poor. Mm -hmm. And it's often quite a racialized image. Um, mm -hmm. The graspers, the needers, and the core instinct is to sort of say, screw those people. Those are bad people, right? Mm -hmm. And a big part of ide our ideology is, in essence, almost protecting ourselves against them. And mm -hmm. I sort of theorized that, like, conservatives kind of see the environment like that, as like a needy person with their hand out. Oh, uh, that's interesting, yeah. And I mm -hmm. think they see the disease like that. Mm -hmm. Like it's mm -hmm. it's a, um, a disreputable, destitute, beggy sort of thing. Like that's mm -hmm. the sort of emotional world view that they brought. Yeah. To, that's speculative. But I think there's something like that that's happening. That it's like we're, we're not like, we're not in the business of giving aid. Because aid is is conceptualized as providing support to degenerate, immoral people, and they mm. saw like COVID as like a form of aid, and I think they see like environmentalism as like a form of aid. I don't know if that made any yeah. sense. No, it did make sense, and I think I mean there's a couple of things going on here. I think in all of these cases, it requires sort of a rejection of individual individuality like this sort of you know their conception of themselves as individuals like if you want to protect the environment um if you want to protect people from covid and all of that um and then i mean i think a lot of things uh, something that gets sort of undersold in our political um rhetoric or our political conversations generally um is just how much of this is identity mm -hmm. um and how the, your sort of perception, let's say, of liberals mm. or progressives or whatever, can get tied on to these causes. So mm. the connotations you have surrounding um, liberals can sort of uh, 
jump over to climate change. Like the these things sort of have the semantics of it are kind of sticky between mm-hmm. subjects. So you say you say you know people might conceive of the environment or COVID as needy, mm-hmm. you know, as um, you know going overboard to help sort of pathetic people mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and if you think about it, that's um, I think I think that's very true in the case of environmentalism, where environmentalists have been painted as hysterical, uh, tree huggers, you know, wimpy, um, concerned about these sort of like baby causes or whatever, and sort of the so the connotations around the person sort of bleed onto mm. the cause itself. So I think you're onto something there. I think that happens. I mean, the thing with the identity thing is it's just such a boring piece of analysis, but it it, mm. it just tracks to so much. Like, I've got nothing mm. really to add to that, because mm-hmm. it's just like, sometimes you wouldn't, like, I'm so fascinated by American politics, and it's such mm-hmm. an interest of mine. But there is just this thing of like, yep, this is hostile negative partisanship just all mm-hmm. the way fucking down. And like, yeah. it's not an interesting theory of analysis, but that ha- that just has to be a huge part of it, right? It, it, I mean, I think it is. And I, I, said, I said earlier, um, or I mentioned before that I recently moved to rural Pennsylvania. Mm. And um, one of the things that I see here is that if I walk into a bar, I am immediately identified as a foreigner, hmm. um, you know, despite, you know, the fact that, you know, I, I'm not a person of color, I'm white. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, when I walk into these establishments, they're all white establishments, hmm. but people uh, look at me like I don't belong there just hmm. from, you know, the way I dress or the way I talk or whatever. And it's hmm. just, it's very much, um, just instinct, mm. you know, uh, an instinctual reaction where it's like you don't belong here, and also we're hostile towards you. Mm. Um, it's a very powerful force, I think. Yeah, I said before I came, well, I said on the interview as well, I lived on Staten Island. Being British in Staten Island is a certain, <laughs> That's interesting. Is yeah. a certain experience. It mm. had its moments. I will always treasure the guy next to me at the bar telling me in drunken sorrow about the custody battle he and his ex-wife were fighting over their gun collection. Um, <laughs> wow, yeah. That was like peak Staten Island. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right there. That's hilarious, yeah. Um, so yeah, these, I mean, this, this coding, this, this identity coding is just so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and politics is just there's so much about it that's expressive it's an expression of like how we mm-hmm. want to see ourselves and politics mm-hmm. is almost a way like a particular brand you might wear or something but even more mm-hmm. profound than that it's a way of telling people how you want to be seen in the world mm-hmm. you know that's definitely and it's increasingly that way mm. with you know social media yeah or something like that now now we have the ability to signal our personalities so quickly um and tie those personalities to politicians Mm. um which creates these very bad dynamics in in my opinion i mean i think you're probably around the same age you know we're probably about the same generation um if i remember back to when i was a teenager uh the big thing that everyone wanted was an employee pick shelf Mm. um like at a bookstore or at a, a 
at a video store or something like that. And for my part, like, I always wanted an inflated bookshelf. And so what I got, I worked at a bookstore, I got an inflated bookshelf. And it was this way, finally, for me to sort of signal who I was, you know, um, as a person by showing which books I liked. Um, and I would approach it differently now. I'm not a teenager anymore, but this is a teenager. It was a very exciting opportunity. Um, but here's Magdi Jacobs. Um, here's who I am. And now with social media, I mean, our options back then were very limited. We also did mixtapes. That was our way of showing people who we were. I remember um, the mixtape. Okay. Mix oh, tape. you just oh, hit oh, me oh, in the nostalgias. Yeah. All of these little ways that we had of showing people who we are. And I think it's a really human instinct to want people to see you, want people to see what's interesting about you and like you all of that. I think it's a human instinct that's always been around. But now you have social media. And I'm off on a tangent here, I'm sorry. But now you have social media. And every single minute of the day you can be showing who you are over and over and over and over again. Um, and I think it leads, you know, it breeds into this um, these factions. And it makes people more entrenched in their own beliefs and less likely to say, you know, I'm wrong or whatever, because it's just very much this constant social signaling um, with a social cost, right? So it's costly on Twitter to be like, no, I'm wrong. It's much easier to just say I'm right over and over and over again. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, to take to take a complete, I mean, this might seem like a bizarre lateral leap, but I'll bring it back well, I, here. I, I went there, I went off to mixtapes and yeah. employed <laughs> Um, I spent a certain amount of time arguing against the sort of left-wing protest voting, be that mm -hmm. Nader or Jill Stein or the Bernie or Bust thing. And after a certain amount of time, I thought, I've made my arguments and, um, you know, people are either going to be persuaded by them or not. At a certain amount, I sort of thought, okay, let me just try and theorise this and get a handle on it. And I think my theorising of it is it's, it's, it's explicitly seeing the role of voting as expressive, as yeah. like, mm -hmm. I'm not defined by the Democratic Party. I'm, more than that, I'm not the type of person who goes along with um, the established order uncritically. I'm mm -hmm. a rebel. Um, right. You know what I mean? It's signalling something about themselves. And to an extent, we utterly talk past each other. Because I'm, me personally, I'm not defined by the Democratic Party. That doesn't signal anything deep about my personality. I view a vote as just much more functionalist terms. But a lot right. of people don't. I know a lot of people who did the who were Jill Stein in 2016 and did the mm -hmm. right thing eventually and voted for Biden in 2020 and they all described this feeling of feeling dirty um mm -hmm. which i found just like so psychologically interesting because i don't right. i just i'm just like not even through like being persuaded by different arguments like i think my brain just isn't hardwired that way with okay. respect to voting but mm -hmm. like like contaminating right, right. why because because it's disruptive to the projection of self that you had attached to that act, you know? Right. So, that's, that, and so that's another example to say, this doesn't only exist on the right. We're all doing mm -hmm. this. I think with the case of COVID, the, the, the right's identification with it has been found far more dangerous and damaging um, than the left's sense of identification with it, because ours aligns with the better policies, but still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely the case that, um, I mean, I, 
there's this just strong link between personal identity and politics. And I think it's becoming stronger. I think it's stronger on social media. Um, and it's a different view of voting than saying, you know, I'm just going to go out and do my civic duty. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I'm going to pick a choice because I have an option to make a choice and that's what I'm going to do. Um, it's very much more like this is a personally meaningful experience. And it's, it's um, I'm not sure it's entirely helpful <laughs> that things are so uh, going that direction. Here's the counter-argument to this, um, mm-hmm. is, I mean, look, it's so undeniably true that we, we get invested in these tribes and we take certain politicians as, like, sibyliths of a particular sense of self, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm in no way doubting that, and in many ways it's just, there's only so long you can spend on it, because it's just not, it's not even an interesting insight, right. you know? Right. Um, I guess here's a challenge, or like, something someone could say to say, but it's not only that that's going mm-hmm. on, because if it were only that, then what you'd expect is in different countries, people's sense of this would sort of be determined by the party in power. And you haven't seen that. What you've seen is pretty much across the world, um, reaction against the vaccine or masking or social distancing has been a right-wing thing. Mm -hmm. And support for, like I say, blah, 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 has been um, a left-wing thing. And I think this is where I said Trump and Johnson are a little bit different. Well, they're different in, Mm -hmm. in a whole bunch of ways. I think Johnson... My read is he really just he believes his own bullshit and he really does have this little England uh, like uh, government got no business telling me I have to take out my recycling sort of yeah. like <laughs> attitude right mm-hmm. I think Trump initially didn't like COVID because he thought it would make him look bad and that went into just like a form of denialism mm-hmm. I think Trump also picked up very early on. Like, he does, he does have a talent for reading the room, at least as far as right. his base goes. Picked up very early on that his base weren't going to be about this. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and as we know with Trump, he really follows his base. And right. I really think we often do our analysis of him the wrong way round, in that we say, why do people, why does this particular political community follow Trump so loyally? And it's actually the other way round. He aligns himself to them in a lot of ways they chose him in a lot of ways and they could have chosen someone else but he i mean he uses his rallies to do this self-consciously he'll throw a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of stuff out see what gets cheers and i mean he's been completely straightforward that that's how he uses his rallies right so trump sorry that was a bit long but like to bring it back to the question trump really i think glocked really early on that his base weren't going to be about this. Um, and I think more or less slowly, other right-wing celebrities, political leaders, whatever, have sort of mm-hmm. caught up to the reality. Um, right. And you've seen the same sort of uh, collapsing of this into the culture war across mm-hmm. the world, or at least right. the parts of the world that I'm broadly familiar with. I'm sure there's some exceptions. Like, it's the same in the UK, it's the same in Europe, it's the same in the US. So it, it can't just be identification with political f- 
figures, right? No, I mean, I think there's a there's a number of things going on here. So, I mean, in terms of COVID, I mean, this kind of gets to the piece that I wrote about populism. Yeah, that's um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, where uh, so there, so let me let me think about this first again. So there's a lot of different factors. There is um, the sort of extant populist movement that's been agitating for a while. And there's the right wing, the very strongly right wing uh, elements of it. There's also the elements that, you know, are maybe like the five star movement in Italy, which kind of veers across the spectrum. There's definitely populist. There's the left wing party in Greece and so on and so forth. So there's there's been sort of, uh, you know, this populism. But I'll talk about right wing populism. So you have this sort of extant force that Trump has definitely appealed to. Um, and you saw the same thing with Sarah Palin, right? Um, where you talked about the audience, about Trump adapting to the audience. That's exactly what happened with Sarah Palin in 2008, uh, where she very much adapted her political persona to the audience. In any case, um, so you have this extent right-wing populism, which is sort of anti-science, anti-government, um, conspiratorial, feels victimized, uh, feels like there's some sort of corrupt elite, uh, you know, controlling them, often anti-Semitic, um, almost, you know, always xenophobic and all of that. So you've got that force. Mm. Then COVID comes along. Um, and you have some of these right-wing populist leaders, or at least right-wing leaders that appeal to populism, mm. uh, they, the people in power, right, um, are going to be held accountable for what happens with COVID. And additionally, uh, the sort of nature of their movement will be anti-government. So in this sense, like in 2020, these sort of interests converged for people like Bolsonaro or Trump, uh, where it was very effective to both be sort of a COVID denialist because it appealed to your populist base. Um, And simultaneously, um, because it gave you some protection because you're the person in power, right? So um, I think that's what's happening in 2020. Then 2021 changes the calculus a little bit because now you have vaccines. So different leaders across the world have sort of traced different trajectories here. So you have um, leaders who are in power, uh, so say Bolsonaro or Johnson, um, Duda in Poland, uh, Duterte, I think I'm saying his name right, in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. None of them, through the you know, latter half of the, sort of the middle of this year, none of them have been extremely anti-vax. Hmm. Uh, Duterte is even threatening people, you know, with violence if they don't get vaccinated. <laughs> um, Bolsonaro started out a little anti-vax and then, you know, has calmed down. Duda, last year when there was an election in Poland, uh, before the vaccine was discovered, uh, he was anti-vax, but now he's, you know, quiet about the issue. So my point there is that 
you've got this sort of issue with um, leaders in power versus leaders out of power, mm. right? Where leaders, once you get the vaccine, um, and so once there's something that you can provably do to stem COVID, um, leaders in power, regardless of how anti-science they are, mm. are highly motivated to do something, right? Because they will be the ones who are responsible when the hospitals collapse. Mm. Uh, so then you see this sort of different trajectory um, after the vaccine of right-wing leaders, where in some countries, the COVID denialists stayed, you know, moved over to being vaccine denial denialists. Um, and that happens in cases when they're out of power. Uh, and then in other cases, COVID denialists have now gone on to sort of super push the vaccine. So those are two sort of different global trajectories. And I think it has to do with just how um, effective this rhetoric is for groups that are out of power. Mm. So like the French far right is out of power. So it's very effective for them to be very anti-vaccine. The uh, In the United States, at least on the federal level, Republicans are out of power. So it's mm. very beneficial for them to be very anti-vaccine. Mm. Um, and that's not the case for every country. But it's clearly where the base is at, because there's a, mm -hmm. there's a clear tension when the right is in power, when mm -hmm. they're saying something that a lot of their base doesn't quite like. They're mm -hmm. in power, so they want COVID to go away, so they want people mm -hmm. to get vaccines. But the mm -hmm. people who are most angry about that are their voters. Oh, definitely. I mean, this is kind of an interesting. Like, um, Johnson is a really probably a very interesting mm -hmm. case of this. Like, it would be interesting to look at his vaccine rhetoric, because there's definitely... Uh, a contrast between what's appealing to the British right, mm. you know, the British far right, very big anti-vax sentiment, um, at least, you know, on the far far right. Mm. Um, and then, but Johnson also views it as in his own best interest to get COVID mm. under control. So his reaction to that um, is both different than his reaction in early 2020. Um, when there was really very little, when, when he was in, endorsing herd immunity and all of that initially. So it's both different from that, and it's different from, say, Trump, who is out of power and who only benefits from sowing distrust and all of that. So these, these populists, you know, who are in power are making different decisions. Um, and they're having to kind of balance the red meat they throw to their base with, you know, the fact that they're in power and will be held accountable. I mean, yeah, Johnson, you can sort of collapse the, the last couple of years of British politics to, like, virus, vaccine, post-vaccine, question mark. Mm -hmm. Because Johnson's, the, the Conservatives have been ahead in the polls pretty consistently, except for when the, it was absolutely at its worst with the virus and we didn't have a vaccine, then it pulled even. Mm -hmm. We did the mm -hmm. vaccine rollout, and that was one of the things we did very well in the UK, at least mm -hmm. initially. Mm -hmm. But we got a lot of vaxes out quite fast, and then they pull apart. And right. he's been about eight points up in the polls. I mean, of course, there's another issue with the UK, um, which is we have a quasi-multi-party system with mm -hmm. regional parties under first-past-the-post, which makes exactly as much sense as it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Um and now there, there is a slight trend downwards again, I think. But I think for a while, you know, I think Johnson at his heart cares about staying in power. Mm -hmm. um, and 
for a while it was just it was going really well and he became really pro-vaccine in a sort of chest-thumping nationalist sort of way of like yeah isn't isn't britain great and we're showing johnny foreigner by like um getting all these people vaxxed and it sort of it sort of became a patriotic talking point in a way you know Mm -hmm. um that's a bit of an aside but yeah yeah, go ahead oh i was just gonna correct me if i'm wrong i might be buried in here but um my impression is that there is a strong right-wing element in the uk that resembles trumpism yes but that the tory party the conservatives in general may still be slightly more heterogeneous ideologically than the Republican Party in the United States. I mean, I I might be wrong there. So, yes, but my my view is that the British Conservatives are on a trend line. Yeah. To something that's like, not exactly Trumpism, but maybe a British Mm -hmm. version of it. Because, I mean, the thing is, historically, there have always been far-right third parties in the mm-hmm. UK. And they, they're... You don't, like... you. Can, it's sometimes easy to underrate their showing because we have first-past-the-post. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's hard to get actual representation. But they had... So there's, there's a few. Um, there's the BMP, the British National Party. They are an out-and-out fascist. But they, they've mm-hmm. had their moments, and they've taken over, like, city councils and stuff like that. Um, then for the longest time you had UKIP, United Kingdom Independence right. Party, which was, in theory, a single-issue party against European Union membership. Mm-hmm. Um, in practice, it's a bit more complicated. Mm-hmm. But UKIP won the European elections a few a, a few years before Brexit. Mm-hmm. With with a plurality of the vote, and that's under um, proportional representation. Right. Um, and there's there's lots of seats where they'll like even under a first past the post thing in some districts they'll chalk like twenty percent or something mm-hmm. like that, and that's been really dangerous for the Conservative Party because in this sort of two main parties plus system mm-hmm. that we have, um, you know, you don't. It's a bit like Labour and the Greens. Like, that's hurting you if you're a Conservative. Mm-hmm. Now, what's happened post-Brexit is the Conservative Party has basically absorbed all of that. Right. Um, and, I mean, it's interesting because, I, I, I mean, I, and again, I'm not an expert on UK, but um, you said trajectory. And I feel like a lot of these um, in different systems, so the United States has two parties, you know, um, you, you have your goofy system over there. <laughs> France has the you know, a multi-party system, you know, with two rounds. Um, you see these similar sort of dynamics where in the U.S. we're at this very advanced stage of just becoming extremely homogeneous and far-right in this two-party system. Um, and then in France, for example, the conservatives are bleeding voters to the far-right. And it seems like in the last 10 years, I mean, maybe 15, 20 years, but really in the last 10 years, you see this increasing competition between the conservatives and the far right in mm-hmm. several parties and the, or in several countries. And this is making the conservatives move farther right mm. in many cases or the far right balloon like it has in uh, France where the conservatives aren't even in competition right mm. now. 
Um, so these trajectories all seem to, I mean, we see, seem to see this across Western democracies right now, similar trajectories. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about the UK case. The, I mean, the, the, the Conservatives still are sort of, like you say, a bit... We, we're also still in a case right now, I think, where political identity and, like, your side in the culture war... Because our culture war is Brexit all the way down, right? Um doesn't yet map one for one onto mm-hmm. political parties. Mm-hmm. It might be going there. Um mm-hmm. but so okay, here's my like Toby explains everything about world politics in four sentences. Um there's basically like two states of play in the world. Um one is which cultural identity maps neatly onto political parties. Mm-hmm. One is which it doesn't. Right? Mm -hmm. The norm is that it does, but you go through periods of transition where it doesn't. So the Mm -hmm. United States is coming out of a period of transition where it didn't, and where, so for instance, white Southern identity was actually competitive between the parties Mm -hmm. in the realignment after the Civil Rights Act and the sort of Southern strategy, Mm -hmm. right? And both Democrats and Republicans were competing for white southern votes and that produced a wholly different politics right um like the, the sort of traditional congressional type politics right um that's not the default resting place of united states mm-hmm. politics the default resting place of the united states politics is where your ultimate identity which for americans is like what you feel about race essentially mm-hmm. Yes. maps neatly onto the political system and it's just all partisanship all the way down and parties become much more uniform and mm-hmm. it's just a sort of two teams type thing, right? Mm-hmm. What goes wrong with basically so much American political analysis is we take that realignment mismatch as the norm. Actually, mm-hmm. where we are right now is much more the norm. In the UK, Brexit was our Civil Rights Act. Do not take that one out of context. Um, but, um, but that in many ways blew up or perhaps merely revealed that these identities weren't neatly latching onto the the political system and Labour had this impossible position where they had a coalition that was two thirds remain and one third leave, you know, and I think the the resting places that they map on neatly and we're working back to that resting place. But the Brexit period was not neat in terms of the alignment, and we're still coming out of it, which is why I say the trajectory. I don't know. That's like yeah. how I see it. No, I mean, I think it's a very interesting historical point where you can have this sort of um, malleability, hmm. right? And then you have a big cultural moment that says something about your national identity, like Brexit, mm-hmm. um, or a big cultural moment in the United States, like civil rights, we should be integrated. Um, and having that break sort of starts making the sort of sorting more obvious, right? And this happens over time. So I think it's just an interesting historical comparison. Um, turning back to um, maybe the far right globally, or, or, or we mm-hmm. could do the case. It's, this is actually, we don't even need to separate the US and the UK because there's been mm-hmm. the exact same phenomena 
mm-hmm. which is that there's been an incredible extension of empathy by the chattering political classes to the vaccine hesitant or to essentially domestic terrorists, Mm -hmm. the people who are trying Mm -hmm. to kidnap the Minnesota governor and so on, of... I mean, we're both terminally online, right? So you see yeah. this all the time on Twitter of like, don't you understand that people in rural communities are actually doing taking horse paste because um, despair, despair no. and cultural isolation. Mm-hmm. And really, when you put it in context, wouldn't you do the same? <laughs> and no. I guess, I mean, my, let me put a question back to you. My question would one be that the, the, that analysis is almost uniformly bad. Would you mm-hmm. would you agree with that ca- characterization? Yes, one hundred percent. Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you think's going on there? Because sometimes you like it's not just enough to say something's wrong. Like, where's that coming from? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um. I don't know. Why do do they feel the need to do that? Go ahead. Well, the global picture, I mean, I don't know how much I can comment on the global picture. I'd have to think about that. But I I can comment on um, the United States specifically. Um, I think that the rise of Trumpism uh, is so fascinating to some people. Hmm. Uh, And I mean, it is is interesting. I'm interested in it but uh, I think a lot of people started projecting a lot of analysts started projecting their own beliefs about what what they thought made it what they thought made it interesting onto the actual phenomenon so you have commentators in 2016 um, and they went up to the election reporters saying you know maybe Trump's more left wing than Hillary on all of these issues mm. Uh, and so that wasn't true. There wasn't really any evidence for that. He was just sort of in between racist tirades. He'd say something nonsensical about healthcare being beautiful or China or whatever. There was he was not ideologically left on anything. Um, but you had people saying that, and I think that there were a lot of people in the United States uh, in the political commentary uh, pundits in the United States who really um, thought it would be fascinating for us to have a far-right populist Mm. who was far-right populist in a sort of xenophobic sense, sort of the cultural identity sense, but was also, you know, economically less conservative um, and, uh, you know, against trade and sort of uh, not, not in the same line as the the Republican Party had always been. And a lot of people just stuck with this analysis. Mm. Um, where you saw it in 2016, but you've also just seen it throughout Trump's presidency, where people were like, oh, you know, maybe Trump is going to mistakenly do single payer or yeah. stuff like that. So getting back to the question, I just think there's, I think that there's this feeling that somehow has arisen in people's consciousness that, uh, there is this kind of populism um, where it's economic, um, where uh, people are economically left and uh, you know socially right, um, 
and you see sort of almost a desire for that to be true hmm. uh, and a lot of particularly left-wing commentary where hmm. you know there's a, seems to be a lot of belief that there's going to be like a socialist uprising in rural Wisconsin mm-hmm. something of, of workers and it's just it's just not going to happen um, you know because I mean there's not this sort of secret socialist class that has economically right-wing beliefs. But I think that people keep imposing that frame over and over and over again. So there's definitely, because there's a few, I mean, so what you're saying is essentially it's like a Rorschach test. Um, mm-hmm. like, like people are reading into this what they want to see in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two. There's two narratives I want to go after. There's the liberal one and the left one, and they're both wrong. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Um, so the, should we do the left one first? And um, my Bernie Sanders supporting audience puts up with a lot from me. Um, but this is a narrative that has taken root within Bernie world and just no amount of evidence will wash it away. That the correct strategy for winning elections in the US is to make class-based appeals to less affluent perhaps culturally conservative uh, voters in red states. Mm -hmm. And that the reason the Democratic Party has lost elections is that they have capitulated to neoliberalism and elites and so on. And so obviously these voters are rejecting them in favour of someone like Trump, who at least speaks their, Mm -hmm. their, their language. Um, and that if we just went out and talked about Medicare for All all the time, we would have a coalition of the Bernie brothers plus mm-hmm. a certain amount of Trump's base, and mm-hmm. that's the way to win. And, like, if you're coming in with strong ideological priors about, like, class exploitation, mm-hmm. I can see that that makes some kind of sense. Um, the problem is we've tested it and just about every bit of evidence in the world suggests that that isn't what's happening. Um, so in 2018, the Justice Dems, they, they took a um, chunk of like 16 seats they thought um, could flip on the basis of this theory. I interviewed a congressional candidate running in one of them. Okay. Um, and the sort of mainline Dems were like, you have fun with that. We're going to go for suburban seats where there's lots of educated Uh women. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you have fun. And they lost all 16 of them. Right. The mainline Dems had some losses, some gains, but they made inroads. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, like, you know, middle-class white suburban women with a college degree who've maybe loosely been Republican affiliated those are class enemies, don't you know? Like, we're, we're, we're here for the workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I don't, I don't know how many more times that one has to be disproven before we let it go. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, is, it is very deep. And, you know, I, I should say this carefully, um, I'm very left-leaning in terms of economics. Mm-hmm. Um, and... If we could win elections by um, appealing to this group of people, not on cultural terms, because I wouldn't, you know, want to change a message to appeal on cultural terms, but um, 
if you could appeal to them on economic terms, that would be great. Mm. Um, I would love it. Um, but it's not happening. It's just not going to happen. Um, and tactically, it's, it's just not, it's, it's not the way forward. I mean, it's just, this is just a strategic point. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, on healthcare, my position's the NHS. It should just be direct government provision. Mm-hmm. Is that going to happen in America anytime soon? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you also see the same Rorschach thing? Let's upset the liberals now. Okay. Um, yeah, this will be my challenge. On the more mainline side. Because what, what, what's really going wrong? with the left-wing analysis there. Are there people who favour a higher minimum wage but also hate immigrants? Yeah, yeah, I mean, according to Mm -hmm. polling, at least, there's a chunk there. Um, Mm -hmm. What's the problem? The problem is when it comes to cast a ballot, they cast it with the immigrant-hating side of their Mm -hmm. brain, not the minimum wage Mm -hmm. raising side of their brain, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I see a very similar cognitive error on the part of liberals which is, like, essentially a desire to call racism really anything else. Mm-hmm. What do, what do you mean? Can so, um... That they don't want to say racism is racism, or...? I mean, they don't want to do that either. But, like, I've seen a lot of um, think pieces from the sort of centrist, hand-wringy, civility mm. columnists. Uh, okay, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. About, mm-hmm. like... We, you know, liberal politicians are condescending to these people. They just don't speak their language. Mm-hmm. Um, blah 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 blah. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Right. Yeah. Um, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Liberal, liberal politicians. I mean, you you really have to cherry pick, and it's it's, it's amazing. We always talk about Obama's um, cling to guns and religion, and we always talk about Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables because those are the worst things those politicians ever said mm-hmm. about the voters of the other party, and they're not that bad. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. like certainly compared to what is just never mind even Trump, just mainline Republican rhetoric. Constantly, yeah. Um. And it's like people are voting from a socially conservative point of view around hierarchies surrounding race and gender. Mm-hmm. Like that's the the grand truth, and there's mm-hmm. a real reluctance to own that among in a lot of liberal analysis because it, it feels like you're insulting them. Yes. So I guess I would make a distinction between two kinds of liberal analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to I mean. No, no, no. This is what we do here. Yeah. So there's the moderate liberals who are socially moderate liberals. Yeah. Right. So um, I don't know if I should name names or whatever, but these are the people who are constantly churning out uh, pieces on the new liberalism of the left in terms of identity politics and all of that. So there's this constant like reiteration of the same topic over and over and over again, the college campus debate and all of that. Um, yeah, I just and, you know, had a discussion about that. Yeah, it's just it drives me nuts. But um, it's, it's it's the same article over and over and over. Again. Mm. Um, so you have those people. Then you have, uh, and the reason I make this distinction is because on the far left, they will be critical of this group that I've just described, but they'll also be critical of another group of liberals 
who is very uh, who are very dedicated to social issues. Hmm. Right. So this is um, you know the group of liberals who uh, you know we get uh, I, I'm one of the group uh, we get accused of uh, engaging in identity politics mm -hmm. because we we want to talk a lot about race um, so on and so forth. So I feel like there's at least these these you know there's there's the far 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 left. Um, and they're much more diverse uh, in tactics and ideal. I mean, they're, they're a very much more diverse group than they appear to be on Twitter. But you have the very far left, and they're very hyper-focused on class issues, almost to the expense of everything else. You've got this group of um, center-left liberals who might be economic, economically progressive, but they're very also hyper-focused on uh, social issues and want to... Um, advanced social issues. And then you've got this sort of group of moderate, you know, mostly white men uh, who uh, think that uh, people asking for the correct pronouns is a new form of oppression. Yeah. So at least those different groups. I, yeah, and I think liberals can get run together with the heightened pronoun concern mm -hmm. people um i'm gonna try and push this a bit um is there still on the part of progressive liberals with whom um you identify mm -hmm. something of um a much more subtle but a still failure to sort of engage with the racism reality let me let me give you an example um and sorry i sometimes take a very long time to ask questions um no. so i think when we and so i'm placing myself inside liberalism right now which i am i'm broadly progressive liberal um with some lefty tendencies um when we as liberals look at the contemporary right we see really stark contradictions um between its libertarian and authoritarian elements mm -hmm. so to take the case of covid we talked about like the the the, the interference with bodily autonomy for for, for 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 common good right and i don't agree with this but you can imagine a coherent position that just says bodily autonomy and that's it just pure mm -hmm. like pure libertarian right mm -hmm. bodily autonomy that's it never mind social harm and that is what the anti-vax people sound like what they're mm -hmm. saying to a liberal ear um but to the left to, to us as liberals that seems really contradictory because presumably many of those people don't feel that way about abortion say right like i haven't actually seen the polling on this but i'm guessing if you did the cross tabs there'd be a fair amount of overlap between mm -hmm. the anti-vax right and people who support the texas law for instance oh, yeah, right of yeah. I, I don't know but my overwhelming guess would be that's quite a tight venn diagram there and mm -hmm. so to the liberal that just looks like an insane confusion like an ideology that 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 doesn't make sense on its own terms no it doesn't make sense on liberal terms it doesn't make sense if you go in assuming that everyone agrees 
that the same state burdens should be applied evenly to different groups of people. That's a liberal point of view. It's only a contradiction when you assume that. And to be to the right's credit, they've never claimed to believe that. They quite overtly don't believe it. And I think in the COVID case, there's, it's just racism, actually, a lot of the time, because the power of the criminal justice system is not to enforce the same set of norms on all of us. The criminal justice system is explicitly to protect us from them. The good, moral, true, white citizens Mm -hmm. from the dangerous, subversive, um, criminal, demonic even, elements within our society. And they overtly say this. So there's this um, quote from um, one of the January 6th protesters, this fucking, like, 57-year-old white woman (laughs) who, like, you can tell has been in her MAGA Facebook groups for years, right, (laughs) who said to the police as they arrested her, but you're, what are you doing? You're supposed to be here to get the BLM terrorists, not us. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. That's just like uh-huh. absolute yeah. crystallization. And you can say, okay, Toby, but that's clearly a very extreme case. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, said something really revealing. Um, he said, we're not going to put any small business owners in jail for violating COVID rules. And he said, and I quote, jails are for criminals, not small business owners. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I just thought that's that's fascinating because, like, to the liberal ear, that's just a contradiction in terms. If a small business owner commits a crime, they're definitionally a criminal. To the conservative right. mind, they're not. Criminal is a category of persons. It's not something you do. It's something you are. Small mm-hmm. business owner is heavily coded as white. It's a true citizen who the law mm-hmm. is there to protect from the right. alien internal enemies within. And now say what you will about that ideology morally, it is coherent. It's a coherent Mm -hmm. view. And what's the problem with all these COVID laws? It's you're treating us like a criminal, meaning me as a white person is being subject to the violent control of the state, which isn't for me, it's to protect me. Mm -hmm. You're treating me like, insert racial epithet here. That's, I think, a lot of it. And okay, so that was way, 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 way long. Um... But th- there's a thing where we're perpetually stuck as progressive liberals in these, like, gotcha questions, where it's like, ah, but you think the government can invade bodily autonomy in this case, but what uh, about yeah. abortion? You th- duh, 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 posing these contradictions that are only contradictions from within the liberal framework. Mm-hmm. And just this real refusal to just name the thing and clearly describe the thing that we're up against. I don't know, that was really long, but, like, that's my take. I I think it's interesting, and I I mean, I'm maybe, I'm I'm not sure if I'm on the same page exactly um, in terms of what you're getting at, but um, we'll make the point where um, I think this is why populism is such a useful framework to understand what's happening both in the U.S. uh, and elsewhere, where... um, to sort of see what's coherent, to sort of see the system that's going on, that sort of is the best match, hmm. rather than thinking about things in, t- in typically like libertarian hmm. um, terms or conservative hmm. terms, if we're thinking sort of, you know, philosophically conservative or whatever. Like there, if you do that, if you try to, if you try to look at 
Republicans say uh, on the libertarian spectrum, you're going to come up with so many contradictions. It's just mm -hmm. not going to make sense. Um, if you try to look at them in terms of fiscal conservative, conservatism, it will not make any sense um, because they do all sorts of wildly expensive <laughs> things. Um, and so this is, I think that this is one of the reasons why I, I'm drawn to this populist explanation because that's a much more sort of emotional explanation. Um, it's much more about identity. It's much more about who you are if you're victimized, your opposition to authority, your opposition to science, uh, tribal identity, within group identity, out group identity. All of these things start to make a lot more sense in that framework than they do, say, economic conservatism or libertarianism. Uh, and I mean, I think we've seen one of I did write a piece on, uh, you know, basically when uh, corporations started becoming more uh, explicitly social justice uh, oriented, making, you know, socially just, social justice advertisements, all of this, uh, and Republicans are mad, you know, Republicans are calling for boycotts and um, they're mad at corporations and they're warning corporations uh, to get in the line and all of this. And that seems crazy, right? Because we think of them as libertarians and we think of them as like, you know, pro-market uh, and all of that. But it sort of, this whole thing has sort of revealed this, the sort of intellectual hollowness um, at the core of all of their pro-market rhetoric. Because if they really were for the market, Right. They would be fine with the fact that consumer choices are now influencing corporations hmm. to make different decisions. Uh, the market is deciding. Right. But when the market decides something that they don't like, hmm. it makes them very mad. Hmm. And the, you, even this last year, you know, several of them have threatened corporations to get in the line when corporations come out against voting rights issues or whatever. So, um, there's all these things that seem like internal contradictions within the Republican Party. Like, how can you be pro-market party and then, you know, want to regulate corporations? And it's because so much of that is just, it, it's very hollow and it's much more about how they can position these things opportunistically in terms of this sort of um, greater, the, the service of their greater political movement. It's all just very opportunistic, I think. And, and at its core, it's much more cultural than it is about fiscal policy, uh, than it really is about uh, principled beliefs about what the government can and cannot do. You know, they don't have principled beliefs about that. They are fine with infringements on, on, infringements on rights as long as it serves their ideological purpose. Which is just to say they're not liberals. Yeah. Like, the idea of, like the government, like, applying a consistent standard with respect to rights. Mm -hmm. That's a liberal idea. Conservatives yeah. have never really even pretended to believe that. I mean, I think libertarianism can be a useful rhetoric to be mm -hmm. wheeled out. In so I mean, there are some consistent libertarians. You know, mm -hmm. you can sort of tell them by, like, they're the pro-immigration ones, for mm -hmm. instance. They're there. Mm -hmm. That's right. another group that's probably overrepresented on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But in terms of um, 
how it's used nine times out of ten in actual political discourse. Libertarianism is a rhetoric that is secondary to the, the core ideological project, which is a project that has internal coherence. It's just not, it's not liberal. Um, right. It's never really pretended to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, some, it's something entirely different. Um, and just just in case I get listened to by any uh, philosophical libertarians, like, mm-hmm. uh, um, I think I think we're both friends with a few on Twitter, right? Yeah, well, I'll just make the distinction. I mean, for other for other people that mm. you know, you can be philosophically libertarian, which is very different than being a hardcore Gary Johnson supporter. Mm. <laughs> yeah, different. I mean, the con- the concrete political group is slightly different than the more sort of political philosophy group. Yeah. I mean, like all ideologies, there's no one thing Mm -hmm. that's liberals, there's no one thing that's libertarians. There are left libertarians, Mm -hmm. they exist. There are the sort of, you know, party-line libertarians. Mm -hmm. There's the like, like weed a lot libertarians. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, though, most of the time when libertarian rhetoric, which is to say Mm -hmm. the value of Mm -hmm. markets, individuals, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 when that Mm -hmm. gets wheeled out most of the time, it's sort of by the political right. Um, in in a way that I don't think it's disingenuous per se, it's just a rhetoric that can be employed to communicate uh, mm-hmm. an underlying set of claims that are unstated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, this is one area where Republicans may differ, but I think in terms of Republican politicians, uh, I've argued before that they are really anti-market as a party, where they say they're pro-market, but um, they um, are advocate for policies that um, encourage externalities. Uh, I mean, they, they advocate for all sorts of things that hinder markets um, and, uh, you know, pollution a big thing, uh, all of these externalities. And they also, you know, uh, advocating against the minimum wage, mm-hmm. advocating against universal health care, mm-hmm. advocating against, uh, you know, putting people in a position where they can participate in markets mm-hmm. is in some sense not a pro-market position. Like I would say an example of a truly pro-market uh, politician would be Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Where she's like, I like markets. You know, she's mm-hmm. a very liberal. She likes markets, but she feels they need to be well regulated in order to uh, be effective. Um, and in terms of the Republican tradition, at least in terms of the last few decades, they're not so much pro market as they are pro big business, pro profit. You know, pro profit concentrated in, in a few um, places. And, uh, I mean, if you think about it, every single one of their policies, I mean, they, they advance externalities, they advance market failure. All of I mean, their policies are just terrible in terms of markets. And then they also make it so that so many people cannot participate in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make it so that people cannot leave their jobs mm-hmm. because their jobs are tied to health care. Mm-hmm. So they, have no, they can't go out and be small business innovators. You know, they can't go out and be creative, all these things that the Republicans say they're for, because they're locked into these jobs uh, for health care. So, uh, 
I just, I mean, I think, I think that the Republicans have often claimed the mantle of being pro-market, but a lot of their policies are disastrous for markets, and they're also disastrous for individuals and prevent individual participation in, in markets. Right, because it's about domination. Mm-hmm. Like, what's, what's the, why really are we scared of employees having their own health care? Because it gives you a lot of power over them. Mm-hmm. That person is really dependent on you. Um, and one of the things I find interesting is you see again and again that people in power will prioritize being able to enjoy having that form of domination over their economic self-interest rationally defined. Mm-hmm. They'd yes. rather have the power than the money. Yes. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, again, it's only a contradiction if you sort of assume that the rhetorical gloss is sincere. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's about the maintenance of domination. It's about the maintenance yeah. of hierarchies. It's about a vision in which those things are locked in and are beyond our ability to really opt out of or control, at least without negative, adverse consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I just see that as a consistent thread. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, just coming back to, to what you said before, I think everything becomes clearer when you start viewing these actors and this and these movements and sort of these broader hmm. emotional, um, personal terms. They start to make a lot more sense than if we try to see them in terms of principled views about the economy or something like that. Yeah, I guess my let's close soon but my my view is maybe slightly between the two Mm -hmm. i think political ideologies exist at a level that's partly rational and partly not they Mm -hmm. do possess a sort of internal coherence but Mm -hmm. it's not the internal coherence of like logical propositions Mm -hmm. um there's a quote i love which is practice has a logic but it's not that of the logician um Uh interesting yeah there is a structure there is an order to it there there are recurring Mm -hmm. themes and Mm -hmm. there is a sort of like emotional coherence to it Mm -hmm. um but it's not it's not what you'd get if you tried to design a philosophy from scratch right you know what i mean right and i mean and coming back to all that i think coherence is a really important point because again we see the same thing all around democracies in the world. And we see it happening at the same time. Um, So it's not that um, the right wing is rising in France and falling in Italy um, or disappeared in Germany and all of that. We see these movements uh, moving in tandem um, despite the differences between countries. So there are you know, coherent, there's, there's got to be some sort of coherent features that are linking um, these movements together and that are predictably driven by dynamics or events or whatever, because you do see them independently arising. One, I saw this graph recently that absolutely blew my mind, and I still haven't really created a good narrative around it in my head Mm -hmm. and that's okay you know sometimes we don't have to have an answer for everything but it it was two graphs actually and it was a scatter plot essentially on the one hand um was um income and on the other was education 
and it was like, where are people voting based on those two across like dozens of different countries, right? One graph, 1970. One graph, today. 1970, you saw very neat alignment. Um, high education, high income people, conservative, less educated, poorer people, left, right? Mm-hmm. True mm-hmm. across almost every advanced democracy. Um, yeah, the traditional labor party. Today, almost every country had pivoted. It was, um, so the, the, the most left-wing quadrant was lower-income, higher-education. Mm-hmm. The most right-wing quadrant was higher-income, lower-education. But there'd mm-hmm. just been this, the, the income one had stayed the same, but then um, the education one had just pivoted. Absolutely. And it had done yeah. it in every single country. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, like I say, I don't have a good narrative around that one, because I was like, that's wild. Because it mm-hmm. suggests that whatever's causally operative there, it's universal. And all of these narratives right. that we create about, like, the particular cultural and economic forces in a particular country feeding into these sorts of voter realignments. Yeah. They're, they're happening everywhere. And I don't yeah. know, like I say, I don't have a great narrative around that one, but sometimes, sometimes something just sets you back a bit. I mean, it's, it is fascinating because it is, I mean, it seems to be happening in the same way in different places, but, um, and we can point to culture hmm. as a reason, but then you have to account for cultural differences. Um, so the United States obviously has a very large, um, has the most diverse population if we're talking about Europe and the United States, um, and there's lo- a long civil rights uh, tradition. Uh, since the 1960s and before. Um, and we can frame a lot of this as reaction towards that. Hmm. Um, and a lot of it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you see on a sort of an eagle eye view, you see similar things with Brexit mm-hmm. or similar things with the rise of the far right. Hmm. Um, but the, the, the context of the country, the demographics of the country, the dynamics of the country, those are, those are different, but you see these same sort of uh, broad, broad trends. And I think that's legitimately interesting. Yeah, I, I, don't, mean, I don't have an answer for it, though. Like, the, what, what yeah. is that like, you know? Yeah, but the, I mean, the far right has risen in France, uh, taking over the Conservative Party um, in terms of the polls, right? Mm. Um, they've gained so much power in the last few years, at the same time as Brexit, at the same time as Trump. Hmm. Um, and some of these forces, you know, anti-immigrant forces, uh, are, are similar, but then there's also differences across countries. So it's, it's very interesting. Although to end on a perhaps slightly uncharacteristically optimistic note, the left mm-hmm. is also changing. I don't mean like the left-left, mm-hmm. although they have gained more prominence recently. Um, mm-hmm. But just like mainline liberalism is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the sort of the ways in which decisions are being made and policy choices are being thought about in the Biden administration is oh, definitely has changed. Um, mainline liberalism, you know, in coalition in a multi-party system, but mm-hmm. still in in Europe is doing quite well. The Norwegians just elected um, a left coalition. Germany mm-hmm. might elect a left coalition. Yeah, their polling has they've switched recently. Yeah. Um, um. The British Labour Party is still down the bottom of a well, fighting itself. Um, but there's, there's actually um, quite a few governments in Europe. Um, you know, 
against the backdrop of existential threat, the Democratic Party mm -hmm. is in power and is doing stuff with that power. Mm -hmm. um, for all that we talk about the right rising, I don't know, hopefully, maybe we could look back in a few years and see a largely liberal world order. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that one area to be very optimistic about is the Democratic Party. Mm. Um, we talked about Jill Stein before and third-party voters. Mm. Um, I've said this before on Twitter, but I was not old enough to vote in 2000, but I worked for Ralph Nader's campaign mm. to my great shame. Um, but again, I was, I was a teenager, so should be forgiven. But anyway, I had that same you know, feeling for a long time of feeling dirty voting for Democrats. After the 2000 election, I definitely felt, you know, um, definitely have to vote for Democrats. Now I see the consequences of all of that. Mm -hmm. But still, I didn't like the fact that the party was not um, extremely uh, pro-gay marriage. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't like, I didn't feel like the party was far left enough um, in social terms generally. I definitely didn't feel like they were far left enough in economic terms. Mm -hmm. um, when I look from 2004... Uh, which I think was the first time I voted, to now, the Democratic Party has changed so much yeah. in a way that I think should be truly inspiring to people. Mm. Um, and that's not, I mean, I've gotten called out by activists before when I've mm. said the party before was not progressive enough, but, um, you know, that's a different conversation. But just within my lifetime, they have moved so far in terms of both social and economic issues. Um, and there's no sign of that stopping. I think there's uh, been an underrated positive to the sort of realignment. Because we're now, I see Civil Rights Act Trump as bookends mm -hmm. on a really weird right. period in American, in American politics where racial identity didn't match onto party identity. Mm -hmm. Now it does. Now, mm -hmm. there are huge fricking liabilities to that in terms of what the, right. the contemporary Republican Party has done. At the same time, it's kind of liberated the Democratic Party in a sense that we are no longer pitching arguments to white supremacists, yeah. which we were as late as the early Obama administration, right? There was definitely, I mean, sometimes there was winking, there was definitely silence, you yeah. know, definitely feeling like you can't. You know, the thing about Obama's speech on race, mm. where he had to come out and talk about racism in America, and that was seen as a big deal, mm. um, where it was, you know, um, it, it seemed like it was going to be a liability to him to mm. even talk about race. And now, look at where we are now. It's just, it, it is liberating. I think it has been liberating. And it, it, I think it's very inspiring here's, for myself. Here's one of my favorite statistics of all time. Um, if you take the most racist white people, people uh -huh. who will own overtly discriminatory views, so like, I don't want black people living in my neighborhood, or uh -huh. opposition to interracial marriage, say, that's uh -huh. about 15 to 20% of the white electorate. Right. Um, that's declined over time, but it's still an important voting demographic. It's larger than the number of black voters in the country. Mm -hmm. um, one one thing I sometimes ask people and it, when I'm being annoying and gotcha is what percentage mm -hmm. of that vote do you think Obama got? And it's 30%. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now, what percentage did Hillary, at least in 08, I don't know the 2012, but there were people who were... The, the, the Democratic Party still, at that late hour, mm -hmm. 
hadn't quite collapsed there. It has now. That's right. low single digits for Hillary mm-hmm. and for Biden. Um, and those votes aren't coming back anytime right. soon, I don't think. Right. No, 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 I don't think there's any um, But 2008, I mean, 2008 and everything that happened surrounding it definitely did start to shift things. Much and more then, yeah. you know, Clinton was actively competitive mm-hmm. with that demographic. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, yes. Whereas now, now that those votes are just gone, um, mm-hmm. it's meant that we can take a more direct line on racial justice, i.e. Biden putting a woman of colour on his ticket and overtly naming white supremacy in his um, thing. And of course, there'll be people who say, yes, but you haven't defunded the police yet. Yes, but that polls at like 7%. Um, But also on economic issues, because economic Mm -hmm. policy is so racialized in America that doing something that is seen as helping the undeserving poor reads as like to white supremacists, I'm not going to support that because, like, I don't want to help black people. Um, right. And in many ways, the Democratic Party's just been liberated from those fears on both sides. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a very good point. And I mean, I, I think um, one, one way to think about it is that 2016 supercharged part of the dormant um, effect of realignment right so we've gone through realignment and there were still a few stragglers around in the midwest you know some blue dog democrats um and trump finally flipped them Mm. you know for a really long time they you know perhaps were culturally more conservative but still you know voted for democrats um so trump sort of reinvigorated that part of realignment right so the the white working class um, voters moving over to the Republican side. And then on the flip side, in 2020 and in the aftermath, Democrats have sort of reinvigorated the other part of realignment, which was, you know, the Rockefeller Republicans slowly becoming Democrats. Now we have the, you know, white suburbanites or white college educated voters sort of flipping around. So you kind of have these long trends of realignment that I think really started got a burst with the Trump, with the Trump era. Yeah. On one side and then the other. And I think there's also that, like, like there's the, the material substructure manifesting itself in politics side. I think there's also just been an ideological change. I think like the left left, like the democratic socialists, they've gone, I think we can overstate this, but they definitely have increased in power and representation. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. clear. Um, mm-hmm. I think, like, he's still a junior partner within the coalition, but we've right. gone from, like, Dennis Kucinich and, <laughs> like, yes. you know, to being an important junior member of the coalition, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's, it's it's not like suddenly there's, like you say, this, this socialism beneath the surface mm-hmm. of America, like, that was never there. But it has increased, um, yeah. and I think that's partly material circumstances. I think that's partly young people graduating post-2008 into an economy that increasingly mm-hmm. didn't have a place for them. Um, mm-hmm. I also think it's just like the people like ideas matter. People have been reading their Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn, and they get into it, you know? Mm-hmm. But there's also been a realignment within mainstream liberalism where I wrote an article about this recently, actually. The sort of third-way new liberalism of Blair and Clinton 
which is still progressive, it's not completely neoliberal, it's not completely sort of <laughs> shill sellout, has changed so much of its formulation. Like, the state's role under Blair and Clinton is to educate and empower people to enter markets, right? Mm -hmm. The state's role now is increasingly this Warren vision of markets are tools that we have. You know, we're not right. socialists or anything, but mm -hmm. markets are tools that we have where we can intentionally reshape their parameters so right. as to deliver particular goods. Um, right. Where we can really go on stuff like antitrust and so on, which hasn't been part of it. And I mm -hmm. think just like ordinary, you know, Nancy Pelosi liberals are, there's, they've been convinced by ideas in a sense. Yeah. And I think obviously I mean, events have impacted, 08 impacted, Brexit mm -hmm. and Trump, I think, shook them. And now COVID's impacted. But I think people just sort of have changed their mind. You know, we're not doing yeah. carbon credits anymore. We're going to do something that looks a lot like the Green New Deal, but we're calling it something different, you know? Anyway. Right. No, I mean, I think, and I think Joe Biden is the perfect case. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, and I made this mistake myself in 2019, I started to change in 2020, but a lot of people saw him as ideologically moderate, so ideologically fixed in being a moderate. So like moderate was part of his identity, the way it is for cinema or the way it is for mansion, right? People, and again, I made this mistake. Um, if you look at his voting record, as the party shifted left during his very long career, he always shifted left mm. with them right um and i think um he's very much like a lot of democratic leaders you know not all but a lot where they um are personally quite progressive but tailor their message to the electorate mm. um and so i think that what we're seeing now is that the electorate has legitimately moved mm. left and that these politicians now feel like they have this permission structure to move left with them. And of course, you know, there's feedback, there's groups, the leaders influence the group and the group influences the leaders, but there's definitely this, this change that we're seeing. I agree. Um, um, okay, before you go, um, mm -hmm. tell the audience um, if they want to read your work or follow you on Twitter, and they should follow you on Twitter, um, where should they go? Um, so to follow me on Twitter, it would be at... Uh, Maggi, M-A-G-I underscore J, J-A-Y, um, on Twitter. And then they can read me um, on Alternate now. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me.